So going back to our series, uh, we have been learning that the gospel shapes the way we believe. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. And the gospel shapes the way we belong to one another. Uh, the, the, the way the gospel brings us to a new community where uh, Jews and Gentiles are gathered together to form the church. And not only that, the gospel shapes the way we behave. It changes our lifestyle. And last week, we ended the sermon uh, on this verse in verse 21, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, that we are called to submit to one another out of our reverence to the Lord. So basically, the ending of last uh, week's sermon is the introduction of this, uh, this Sunday sermon, is how we are to submit to one another. That means our Christian lifestyle affects the relationships we are in, right? If we are to behave in a way that is changed by the gospel, it will naturally affect uh, different relationships that we are in. So today, we will look at the section in our efficient series where, where Paul talks about how the gospel shapes three relationships of a believer, Ano yon? In marriage, in the household, and in the workplace. So some of you are single. You might say, well, this, is, this may not be for me. But hold on. There might be something for you here. All right? And you will notice as Ezra read the, the passage, this is very practical, very applicable. By just reading it, you will understand what, is, what it's trying to say to us. So I will, not, um, I will not complicate it, uh, but uh, what I hope today is to give you some guiding principles in reading this passage to help you apply this uh, further uh, in your context and perhaps address some uh, contemporary issues that we may have with these relationships, right? There are really issues in our time that runs contrary to these principles. So let me give you already the outline of our uh, uh, message today. We are going to talk about number one, the mandate for gospel-shaped relationship. What are we called to do in these relationships? Second is, what is our motivation for gospel-shaped relationships? Why we will pursue it? What will uh, keep, us do, uh, uh, keep us doing it? And third is, what is the model for gospel-shaped relationship? Where do we look for inspiration? So again, the mandate, the motivation, and the model for gospel-shaped relationship. Let's look at number one, the mandate for gospel-shaped relationship. And I will probably be uh, spending more time here in, in this sermon uh, compared to the last two. If we're going to, if I'm going to um, give an overarching statement on what is the mandate for gospel-shaped relationship here, we are called to honor and trust the God-ordained design for relationships in our lives. Let me repeat that. The mandate for a gospel-shaped relationship is to honor and trust the God-ordained design for relationships in our lives. So what does it look like in marriages? Well, Paul tells us wives 
are to submit to their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives. So let's look at them one by one. The wives, are again, are called to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. You know, um, the call to, to submit, for a wife to submit to, his, to her husband, it triggers our 21st century mindset. It seems to imply that women are being robbed of their dignity or identity or capacity. Well, that's not what this text is teaching. Keep in mind, this is not primarily a gender issue, but a covenant issue. This is a covenant issue. A marriage covenant between one man and one woman in the presence of God in a community of witnesses recognizes that each party in this covenant is bringing glory to God in their union. And that entails recognizing that God has placed some structure to accomplish his purpose in our lives. So if you are in a, a marriage relationship, you are saying that I recognize that there's a structure that God placed in my life to bring his purpose. Again, that's not for everyone. So to submit means trusting that God placed someone for wives. That means you are trusting God that he has placed someone to lead you and guide you in your sanctification. Listen to this, women and wives and even, even men, submitting does not mean, does not imply inferiority of women. In fact, we celebrate, you know, the strong women in our church. We have a lot. <laughs> this does not negate yung biblical principle that when women and men were equally created in the image of God. It does not negate that. It only amplifies that Yes, we are equally created in the image of God, but we are given unique roles to complement one another. That one role cannot duplicate the other. We are to complement one another. So look at this um, reminder from Paul, he is saying wives, and th this is something that we need to clarify, wives are to submit to her husband, not to all men, right? So, you know, that immediately clarifies that we are not talking about inferiority of a gender here. Wives are to submit to the, the man, the husband, that he, has, that he is in covenant with. So if you are a guy that you're expecting a, another person's wife to submit to you, you are, you are distorting the message of the Bible. Second, wives are to submit, how? As to the Lord. Meaning, her ultimate submission 
is to the Lord who cares and loves perfectly. So, when submitting to her husband and submitting to God conflicts one another and there will be instances like that where uh, the, the authority of the husband, his imposition of his authority is, runs in contrast with what the Bible is teaching, submitting to the Lord takes precedence. Submitting to the Lord takes precedence. So wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, ano yung mandate? Husbands are, to, are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So to love, a, a husband to love his wife means the husband must lead as the head of the family. Hindi lang ito show of affection. This is uh, recognizing your authority as the head of the family. And the husband being the head of the family does not mean he is in control. He is manipulating anything. That he is the only one doing all things. You cannot do that. Adam cannot do that. He needed a helper. It means to be the head of the family. It means he is ultimately responsible for his wife and his family. So yes, it is good that a husband can make his wife happy by providing for her, by being a, you know, a good comedian. <laughs> you, uh, you make your, your wife laugh. Uh, you pamper her. That's, those are good things. But his primary responsibility is not your wife's happiness, but her holiness. It's what we see in the text. To love the wife the way Christ loved the church. That means, Christian husbands, every Christian husband is functionally the pastor of the family. Your first member is your wife. And that's a good training for pastoral ministry you get a lot of <laughs> objections. <laughs> you get to experience what it means to journey with someone. Pero pastor, hindi ba ibig sabihin yan, doesn't that give an opportunity for men to abuse their authority? Doesn't this lead for, to, to oppression and tyranny and abuse? Well, sadly, many sinful and awful men have used this passage to justify their destructive behavior. But clearly, that is contrary to what the passage is teaching us. Bakit? What, what is happening in, a, in an oppressive and tyrannical relationship? What happens is, the one in authority, you know, for instance, in a, in a husband and a wife, the, the abusive man, is using his authority, is using his power to sacrifice others for his advantage. If it's sexual abuse, he's using his authority and sacrificing his wife for his sexual pleasure. If it's, uh, it's, if it's um, finances, he is 
uh, uh, exercising his authority, abusing his wife to, to make himself better. But that is directly the opposite of what this text teaches and encourages husbands to be. Husbands are called to love his wife the same way Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? Selflessly, sacrificially, using his authority not to sacrifice others, but to sacrifice himself for the good of his bride. So friends, oppression and abuse does not have a place in God's design for marriage. So again, God's design for marriage is for wives to submit and husbands to love and lead as the head of the family. Let's move on to, to what this looks like, this mandate looks like in the home or household. Well, in, in, in recognizing and honoring the God-ordained design, it means children are to obey and honor their parents and parents are to take the primary responsibility in teaching and nurturing their children. So in chapter 6, we see that children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he quotes the Old Testament uh, commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment accompanied by a promise. Namely, that it will go well with you and that you will live a long time on earth. It has a promise. It has a built-in promise as you follow it. Why? Because this is the right thing to do. You know, I'm, we don't think, really think about it now, but I'm fascinated how God designed, uh, you know, generations and human development to come through uh, a, a child being born out of another person. Can you imagine if we are born like, you know, like plants? <laughs> Like someone just throws a seed and you just grow. And no one, no, you, you can't call anyone your mother and your father. God designed for each and every person to come out of another person so that there will be that relationship and nurturing. And so children, because they are brought into the world from their parents, it's just right, ayun yung sinasabi ng text natin, to, to obey your parents. And you know, we are a culture, Filipino culture is a culture that is family-oriented. And so normally we say, yes, pastor, that's what I'm doing. But there's also a wrong way of doing it. There's a, a wrong way of doing. What's a wrong way of doing it? When your obedience to parents has taken place, taken the place over your obedience to the Lord. And this is a tricky part, but I think this is uh, more common in, in an ancient culture where families are placed on a pedestal, right? We bend over backwards to honor 
uh, our parents to the point of idolatry. You know, don't get me wrong. We need to, as, as children, we must obey and honor our parents. This is right. But we cannot make it the ultimate thing in our lives. You know, sadly, many men and women are walking wounded because they spend their lives pleasing their parents, hoping that they will get a sense of validation or fulfillment from their parents and they do not get it. And so they, because of that um, void, they continue to express that in the family that they are in now. And so what you have are, are people who, who grow resentful, bitter, and broken because they did not get that sense of validation and affirmation when they put all their hopes and trust in their sinful parents as well. You know, our parents are wounded. They're broken as well. They cannot be our savior. And that, friends, is what it looks like when we place our hopes in an idol. If you are a parent, or if God grants you the privilege of becoming a parent, you know, you can cut that cycle of woundedness and idolatry by fulfilling the God-ordained role for parents, which is to be the primary disciple-maker of your children. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Negative, it ain't positive, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, if you just read this passage separately, if you just read the, the passage, the first part, you know, do, do not provoke them to anger and do not read the other part, it will feel like it's blind tolerance. Children, do anything you want. If you want to call yourself a horse, go ahead. If you want to call yourself uh, a puppet, go ahead. I will not, you know, I will not uh, provoke you to anger. Do anything you want. But if you read the second part lang, just the second part, raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord without looking at the other one, the first part, it seems naman overbearing and authoritarian. It reminds me of the teacher that I'm afraid of. What brings them together, when you read them together, it provides us a good balance, a good picture of what it means to be a primary disciple maker of our children. What bridges them together is this phrase, to raise them up. That means, that means friends, to nurture, to nurture our children. You know, we can delegate a lot of things in our home. We can delegate to uh, a little bit of teaching and, and, and guiding and pampering our children from our lolos and lolas. But nurturing, we cannot delegate that, parents. That is our primary role. 
You know, to be a primary disciple maker of your child is a lifelong commitment to nurture a saint. If, you, if you're a Christian husband, your first member is, is your wife and your, your son or your daughter will probably your first experience of church discipline. <laughs> but why address fathers only in this passage, Pastor? Bakit fathers lang? Well, the, the mandate is given to them, again, because they are the head of the family. But this includes also, you know, a, a collaboration between the mom and the dad. And this also includes those who are taking the place of a father in their home. What do I mean? Those who are solo parents. Those who have been neglected by their husband. You can take this. But whether your, your home is, is solid and, and stable, and the mom and dad are there, uh, or it's difficult because there's conflict in the, in the household, you know, the church can help. Because parents need help too, right? And so the church exists to not take the place of the parents, but to assist the parents in raising the children in the fear of the Lord. Remember when we baptized uh, Emma and, and William, the, the church made a commitment that you will be part in, in raising these young, young children in the fear of the Lord. Right? We... I, you remember I mentioned that it takes a church to raise a Christian. We need help in raising Noah. <laughs> we, the, the children here need our help. What they see when we gather together, what, what, what we do together when we fellowship together is shaping and molding their understanding of the Christian faith. So again, parents are called to be the primary disciple makers and children are to obey their parents because this is right. Let me move on because we still have two more uh, points here. What about in the workplace? What's the mandate for a gospel-shaped relationship in the workplace? Well, I think this needs some clarification because we're talking about slaves and masters here. Pastor, we do not live in a culture where you know slavery exists so we need to understand that slavery is very much alive in the first century ephesus and some scholars even suggest that one-third of the population are slaves so it's a society and an economy that is being run by slave trade and what's happening was there were efficient residents who own slaves and they become Christian. And then you have slaves who hear the gospel and they are converted. In fact, we have a whole book in the Bible uh, dedicated to that, Philemon. And so 
you, you have the Christian community that is neither Jew nor Gentile and they're practicing a new, a new ethics are now challenged to apply their, their newfound ethical standards with the reality of their life and that is the, the reality of slavery in their society. So by giving this instruction uh, to slaves and masters, Paul is not promoting slavery. He is not promoting slavery. In fact, you, you will naturally, in, in church history, we see the deterioration of that, uh, of that uh, uh, relationship. What Paul is doing instead is he is redeeming the working relationship between slaves and masters. That's why we can consider this, the contemporary equivalent is between employees and employers. Not necessarily someone who's, uh, who, who are slaves and not necessarily uh, masters who own their lives. So what's the mandate? Well, employees are called to obey their bosses, right? So the, the, the command is to obey your human masters, how? With fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers. But you are slaves, not of your boss, but of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. What else? You obey with enthusiasm. Yes, boss. As those serving the Lord, not people, because you know that each person, whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. You know, slaves during that time, uh, especially those who were bought in the slave market, and that's obviously, it goes without saying, that's, a, that's an awful way of uh, looking at people, that you are a property of someone, you don't have your own identity. So naturally, slaves would tend to hate their masters, right? Slaves would naturally hate their masters. And employees today, employees today, tend to despise their boss. Don't nod your head if your boss is here. <laughs> In fact, one of the top reasons why employees leave companies is their boss, right? It's not the pay, it's not the work, but the boss. So to work half-heartedly, to do poor work, to work for the paycheck is our way to make it fair. It's our way to get back at our horrible bosses. You know, yes, this is part of, of the curse of sin that work has become difficult, work becomes toil, but this does not mean we neglect it altogether. So the solution that Paul gives us is not to place a dichotomy between serving earthly masters and serving God. He's not saying earthly masters, they're bad. Heavenly master is good. So leave your earthly masters and serve God instead. Is that what he's saying here? 
No. Paul's instruction is much more revolutionary. It needs a heart change for it to happen. He is saying, you serve the Lord by faithfully serving your earthly master. Why do it? Why work for the boss who, who does not care about you? Why work for a company that does not promote you, does, it neglects your, your good effort? Because you no longer do it for selfish gain. You no longer do it for the praise of people. You do it for the pleasure of your ultimate boss. And your ultimate boss, the Lord, is a just and fair rewarder of his people. So work faithfully because you will be rewarded. Not, maybe not your boss, maybe not here, maybe not in your own lifetime, but the Lord is a faithful rewarder to his people. And so that, you know, the flip side of that, if you're an employer, if you have someone under your employment, you are called to treat your employees the same way. Again, this is a revolutionary because Paul is saying, masters, you do not own your slaves. You don't own their dignity. You give up the use of threats. Why? Because you know that both you and your slave, they have the same master. And there's no favoritism with him. So, so again, the mandate for gospel-shaped relationship, the statement is to honor and trust the God-ordained relationships that God has placed over our lives in, in marriages, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, inside the home, and in the workplace. Why do we need to do this? What will motivate us to honor these God-ordained structures? So here's our uh, motivation. Number one, it promotes human flourishing. When we follow these God-designed structures, it promotes human flourishing. You know, when someone tells me that this view of marriage and family is so old school and out of date, I will agree. I will say, yes, you are correct. It's so old, it goes all the way back to Genesis. You see, the basis of the structure is not the culture, but creation. That's why there's a, you know, in our passage, Paul calls back to how a man and a woman are united together. He recalls back to Genesis. He recalls back to to creation and what did God mandate for Adam and Eve when he created them he called them very good and in verse 28 of chapter 2 God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth this is God's design 
And this is God's way for human flourishing. And this is, keep in mind, this mandate has been given prior to the fall. Prior to the sin of Adam and Eve. When we submit ourselves to this structure that God has given to us, we are fulfilling the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve. In other words, we are again func functioning so old as God's image bearers prior to the fall. So when there is healthy marriage, when there's nurturing home, a faithful workplace environment, we can expect human flourishing. You can expect that. But the flip side of that is the negative. When we do not see human flourishing, we see uh, human deterioration or the society's deterioration. And again, following this structure preserves society from further deterioration. You know, sociologists, whether they're Christians or not, governments agree that family is the basic unit of society. Would you agree? Right? So, that means you can trace the deterioration in all societies all the way back to the breakdown of an biblical understanding of marriage and family. We cannot redefine this. We cannot redefine this. Again, going back to that um, creation narrative, remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God declared a curse to them. What is the curse? First to the woman, in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 16, he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will give birth to children. Ano pa? Ito na. You will want to control your husband. But he will dominate you. You see the reverse of that in, 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 our, in our text? You see the opposite of what's happening? In 17, verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you obeyed your wife. Instead of leading your wife, you obeyed your wife. You know what happened when, when Eve sinned? Adam was there. He was very present and he did not exercise his authority to lead his wife. There was a reversal in that sin. What happens is that the ground is cursed because of you. And in painful toil, you will eat of it in the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the grain of the field. So relationship between husband and wife and obviously in, in the family is, is affected. And even uh, work is affected. So what Paul has been talking about to, for a wife to submit to, his hus to her husband and husband to, uh, to serve and love and lead his wife and for, for people to be faithful in their workplace is actually a reversal of the curse. And so when we do that, we are, we are preserving, we are functioning as salt of the earth. We are preventing the further deterioration of society because as we have learned uh, a couple of Sundays ago that you know, we live in, in a world that is uh, growing evil. 
And so by just maintaining this um, godly structure, we are preventing uh, the further deterioration of our society. You know, imagine a society where children are nurtured and, and trained in the instruction of the Lord. Imagine with me, you know, we have, we have children who can recite uh, Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in, in death? And I think Emma can recite that now. I'll not put you on the spot, Emma. It's fine. <laughs> Imagine workers working faithfully and efficiently. Imagine employers giving fair wages and treatment to their employees. Imagine husbands leading well, seeking the welfare of their wife and family above his. Imagine wives joyfully submitting to their husbands. What a world, right? What a world. And so for single people here, that's something to look forward to. But sadly, that's not what we see in our society now. Marriages, even Christian marriages and even Christian homes are marred with difficulties and distresses and brokenness. And so that's where we can find the motivation in these relationships because it provides an opportunity for gospel witness. In the workplace, it means when you're working faithfully, it's, it means you're letting your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise the Father in heaven. Inside the home, it's an opportunity for gospel witness because your children, your children is your captive audience for evangelism. You already have someone who will listen to you when you share the gospel to them. And in marriage, actually, Apostle Peter echoes what Paul said. We went through First Peter series uh, many months ago. Listen to this in chapter 3 uh, of First Peter. In the same way, wives, submit to yourselves to your own husband so that even if some disobey the word, meaning they're not Christians, they may be won over without a word but by the way their wives live. Just following through this gospel, uh, uh, God-ordained design for relationships is an opportunity for gospel witness. It's an opportunity for people to see, well, something is going on in this person's life. Why is he working faithfully? Why are these children following their parents and not following their YouTube influencers? Why is this marriage, even though they're they're having a difficult time. They enjoy being with one another. It's because of the gospel. Well, pastor, does that, does that mean now we can only be a good gospel witness if our relationships are ideal, if we are good employees, if we are good employers, if our marriage is good, if our children are, uh, you know, not 
rebelling against us. You know, when our families, when our workplace, when our home is you know, reaping the benefits of this structure, it's a glimpse of what God intended for us. But in the ugliness of these relationships is a reminder that we need a Savior. In every relationship. Remember, parents, your children are still saved by the, by the grace of God, not your good parenting. Your marriage, no matter how happy you can look like, cannot bring you to heaven. Your workplace, even if your faithfulness brings you fruitfulness in your life, it's not your means for justification. We still need a savior. We still need someone to look forward to, someone to help us see what it looks like for a redemptive type of relationship. And where do we see that? We see that in Christ. He is the pattern that we could follow. You notice that in every turn of this passage, in every relationship, Paul brings us back to Christ as the model for these relationships to thrive. He is the key to make these relationships work. So what we see is that Christ, in the relationship between husbands and wives, Christ is the perfect husband to his bride. Christ willingly gave his life for a bride that was in rebellion against him. He died for the bride that was unwilling to submit to him so that his bride will be freed from her bondage, so that his bride will be renewed, be restored, and be ready. Christ is that perfect husband. That's why, you know, the center of all this practical guideline, Paul says, this is a profound mystery. And if you're married, you will say, wow, marriage is a mystery, really. This is a profound mystery, but he's not just talking about relationships. He's talking about Christ and the church. The bottom line for this relationship is to see the love of God in Christ, how he gave his life for the church. That's you and me. And so he is our perfect husband. He is our groom. Not only that, Christ is the, the perfect son, completely obeying his heavenly father. You know, in his final hours before his crucifixion, he prayed to his father. In John 17, Jesus finished saying these things to, to, his, uh, to his disciples. He looked upward in heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you, just as you have given him authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given. Verse four, I glorify you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He is the one who completely obeyed the heavenly father. So he is the model for a relationship of uh, son obeying his father. The last, Christ is the perfect master. 
that became the greatest servant. He is the perfect master who treats all those under his authority with love, tenderness, gentleness, justice, and righteousness. And he is the master that removed his master's clothes and placed himself on a servant's clothes. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. This Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. By looking at other men and by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And what's the result? Then God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, Christ is that perfect master and also the greatest servant. He is the model for our gospel-shaped relationships. He is the key to make these things work. So what does this mean for us? And I'll end here. Now for wives, submit to Christ first. Submit to Christ first. And your submission to an imperfect husband will never go to waste. Husbands, learn to love the way Christ loved the church. You put their welfare above yours. Learn from Christ. Children, because you belong to Christ first, obey Him. And that will help you obey your parents. Even if they are wounded and sinful and broken as well. Parents, learn from Christ as the greatest teacher. If you're an employee, if you work, serve Christ first. Report to him. Serve faithfully. And that even if you don't get the promotion that you hope, that you desire, you get the reward from your true master. And employers, if you have people under your care, see Christ as your Lord and Master. And let that change the way you view others who are under your employment. For the single people here, aspire for marriage. If it's, if it's possible, aspire for it. But as a reminder, let's not make it the ultimate thing. It's not the ultimate thing. Christ is. And for, for all of us, for all of us, whether, wherever you are in this situation where you feel like you've, you, know, you fall in the cracks because your, your family li life is not ideal, 
there's a reason why the main point of this whole passage is that Christ loved the church so much because all of us fall under that category that we are redeemed as his children, as his flock and become children of God through his sacrifice. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have created uh, the universe in order, that you have placed our lives in structure where we can flourish. And we thank you that we have the reminder of what that looks like when these relationships glorify you and sanctify us. Lord, we, we remember that our relationships are difficult to sustain and it has been a source of frustration, brokenness, uh, bitterness. And so we, Lord, Lord, we confess and we ask your help. Lord, I pray for uh, the married couples here that they will practice forgiveness and patience to one another, that they will see one another the way you see us, Lord, I pray for those who have traumatic experiences in their relationship. Lord, would you heal them from that brokenness, from that trauma? Allow them to see the beauty of the gospel, that you are redeeming us from these relationships and that you are bringing us to a right relationship with our Father. Lord, help the single people here aspire for good marriages so that it will bring glory to you and sanctify them. Lord, we ask for uh, the children in our community. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, you will use this church as a place where they are being discipled, uh, that we will come together uh, and, and help uh, the parents in need for raising the children in the fear of the Lord. Lord, we ask that as a community, uh, we will be a, uh, a church where human flourishing uh, is evident, not because we are good, not because we behave well, but because of the gospel, because you have redeemed us, you have changed our hearts to see that these relationships are for your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.